This morning comes from Daniel chapter 3. This can be found on page 1374 in your pew Bibles. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude, attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unarmed, unharmed. And the fourth looks like, a, like, the, like the son of a go, the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. If you're with us for the first time this morning, we're in a series on the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book, also known as a prophecy. The setting is that um, Babylon has taken over the land of Judah and has begun to take captives into Babylon, and this first wave of captives appeared to be the best and the brightest young men of, uh, of Judah, and that's uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And part of the uh, question in the book of Daniel, as we've looked at, is how do God's people live in a foreign land? And that's one of the things we'll be looking at this morning. We're also going to look at, uh, at this chapter uh, next week as well. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're coming up on Halloween, right? Freddy Krueger and chainsaw massacres and boo at the zoo. All the focus is on fright. People have their little displays out in their front yards, at least in my neighborhood. They've got um, tombstones and skeletons and all that kind of thing. 
on the corner down the street from us, someone's got like a 12-foot ghost that's, you know, one of these deals with air blowing through it, and so it's moving around, and every time I drive past it with Lily in the car, she says, I scared, I scared. I saw one commercial on TV, I think it professed something like, horror is heaven. Talk about an oxymoron. But there is a fear out there that I think that more and more of us as Christians are actually becoming sensitive to. It's present in academia, whether you are a teacher or a student. It's present at neighborhood get-togethers. It's present in family gatherings and parties. It's present in politics. It's all over social media. And what it is, is the fear of monotheism. The fear of people who worship one God exclusively. It's really a a fear of Christians. People who refuse to bow down to the diversity of gods that our society promotes. You see, that's the world that we live in today. The world that we live in is a world of tolerance. It's a world of of pluralism. That means that there's not just one path to the divine, but there are many paths. And so you can pick and choose what path you want to follow. You can pick and choose what God or gods you desire to worship. Making exclusive claims about the truth today and in our setting is something that simply frightens people. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says that one of the most frequent answers that he receives to the question, what's your biggest problem with Christianity, is this. It can be summed up in one word, he says. Their biggest fear, exclusivity. Their biggest problem with Christianity. Let me read just a couple of quotes. Blair, a 24-year-old woman, asks, How could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and to try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Jeff adds this comment, Religious exclusivity is just too narrow. It's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. The world will never know peace because of people who believe in in one God. Friends, you hear this kind of thing everywhere these days. These are not isolated kinds of of comments. But before before we begin to dismiss these kinds of things, I think we have to admit in this place, at least in part, that they are correct. They're correct in some ways. They have a point. Historically, there's been a great deal of violence and conflict all done in the name of religion. And when people do claim to know the truth, 
they sometimes get to feeling superior to others. And when they feel superior to others, it's much easier to begin to marginalize groups of people and even oppress groups of people. People who believe that they have the truth are nothing to mess with, right? Parents just think of a couple of crying children in your house. You ask them a simple question like, what's wrong? What happened? And in loud sobs, each child will defend their view of the truth as they saw it, right? And they'll defend it to the death. He hit me. No, she called me a name first. And on the argument goes and nobody backs down. Now, if we as Christians possess the truth of Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves, how do we not become like those little children arguing in the room? How do we hold on to that truth and express that truth and live out that truth in a way that doesn't alienate or intimidate or frighten the people around us, the people that we love? We've said, right, that the book of Daniel asks this question, how do God's people live in a foreign land? Well, how do you live when you cling to or possess a truth that is foreign to many? Right? It's one thing to know the truth and to express the truth in a land where everyone believes the same thing you do. But how do you claim to know the truth in a foreign land? Well, let's look at Daniel 3 and see if it has any answers to those questions this morning. And I'd like to look at three things with you this morning. The first is, who's most tolerant in the story that we just read? Is it the monotheists or the polytheists? Who's the most tolerant or the most intolerant, you could say? Second, I'd like to compare our methods or the methods that we see here of spreading the truth, okay? The different methods of spreading the truth. And then finally, let's look at what does it mean when you see the truth as a person, okay? When the truth is actually a person. So let's begin um, first. Who is the most intolerant or the most tolerant person in the story? Start with a little context, right? Uh, we find King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3, and he's set up this incredible 90-foot statue, and he's calling all of the subjects in his realm to come and to worship that statue. All the peoples, nations, and tongues, he says. He wants everyone to bow down and worship the image that he has set up whenever they hear the praise band start to play its music. And this is where our heroes of the story sort of get themselves into trouble. Verses 9 to 12 tell us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ignoring the king's command, right? Of course, the king didn't know anything about that until the Chaldeans squealed to him. By the way, we don't know if these were ethnic Chaldeans. The word is often translated in English into astrologers. We don't know exactly who these people were. We do know, and we saw last week, that they are on the king's payroll, right? And they're part of his team of advisors. 
And perhaps that perhaps these people were even a little jealous, right, of the fact that these three Jewish young men held higher positions in Babylon's kingdom than they did. In any event, they tattled to the king that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not following the king's orders. And this is where we get our first glimpse of the monotheists, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But surprisingly, they're not out picketing in the streets, right? They're not inducing violence. They're not posting editorials about the king's worship policies on his website. They're not bombing his temples. They are simply not showing up for his 9.30 a.m. worship service. It's a very quiet protest. They're just not participating. Now, we're going to compare that with Nebuchadnezzar, who comes off as, well, at least in our society, as the one of an open mind. He's the easygoing polytheist, right? We're going to think about his response, but before we do that, we're just going to pump the brakes a moment and ask this question. Why set up this statue in the first place? Why set up this statue and command everybody to worship it? Why start tinkering now with Babylon's worship statement? Well, remember what we said last week. Nebuchadnezzar is not just a king. He's an emperor. He's a man who piece by piece is assembling like a huge jigsaw puzzle. He's assembling all of the nations into one world empire. And as you might expect, each of these peoples has their own gods and goddesses, right? The Jews have their god, the Greeks have their gods, the Egyptians have their gods, the Persians their gods, and so on and so forth. And so how do you take all of these people and, and how do you homogenize them all into one? How does Babylon become sort of the melting pot of all the nations, I mean, that's the question that Nebuchadnezzar is noodling on here in our story. And what we have to understand is that, that Nebuchadnezzar is a really smart guy. You don't get to be an emperor by being dumb and foolish. And we get the wrong sense sometimes because our text actually makes a little fun of him. It makes light of him, and there's a reason for that, I think. But we have to understand that really Nebuchadnezzar has a plan here. He's a smart guy, and what he's trying to do is bring everybody into one empire, make them all friendly with each other by striking at their hearts. He's striking at their hearts. One of the strongest identity markers that we have as a people has always been religion. Okay, Religion is is something that forms culture, right? Um, and often those two things have even become the same. Religion and culture. And therefore, for instance, if you happen to be an Iraqi here this morning, chances are you grew up Muslim. Or if you come from India, chances are you were hin Hindu or still are. If you came from Poland, you're likely Catholic. If you came from Japan, you're likely Buddhist, and so on 
and so forth. And religion and culture just seem to get merged and pressed together. And so taking away a person's religion was, at, was like striking at their identity. And people chafe at that. People don't want that. People rebel from that sort of thing. And so Nebuchadnezzar understands that. He gets that. And so what he doesn't say to people is that they have to give up their religion. What he doesn't say is, I want you to give up your gods. Rather, what he says is, I want you to add one more god to your playlist. That's all I'm asking. I just want you to add one more god. And you see, if you can get people to do that, if you can get them to compromise in that one way, chances are you'll be able to get them to compromise in many other ways. And you'll rid yourself of those bothersome exclusivists. You see, if people make exclusive claims about their gods and about their religion, then what you have is all sorts of infighting, right? All the provinces are fighting against each other, the north against the south, the east against the west, and so on. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want that kind of infighting in his empire. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to spend all of his free time putting out little fires here and there. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to spend his free time fishing. And so how do you rid yourself of all these exclusivists? Well, you just ask them to worship one more God. In fact, you command them to worship one more God. And in that way, you make them all easier to get along with. See, friends, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He wasn't saying, worship only my statue. He was saying, worship whoever you want. And worship my statue. Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist, and he was demanding everyone around him to be a polytheist like him. Nebuchadnezzar was a pluralist. He was a worshiper of many gods. But the question is, does that make him less of an exclusivist than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? who said, we will not worship any other gods. Is Nebuchadnezzar any less of an exclusivist than those three boys? See, this is the question that we want to think about this morning because it's a question that confronts us as Christians time and time again today. Christians worship only one God, all right? We worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We say that Jesus is the only true God, and Jesus is the only way to the true God. And we believe that Jesus' teaching is our only, our one and only guide for living in this world. And as a result of that, as a result of those kinds of beliefs, we are often accused of being closed-minded and intolerant and arrogant and fanatical and bigoted, and a whole host of other names, too many really to list. But before we accept that verdict, friends, we need to ask ourselves, but how tolerant really was Nebuchadnezzar? How tolerant really was this polytheist in the story? 
Because basically, he was saying this, you can believe anything you want to believe except what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believe. Okay? You can believe anything you want to believe except what they believe. Nebuchadnezzar was open-minded to anything other than monotheism. That he could not tolerate. You see, he could not tolerate intolerance. And in that very act, Nebuchadnezzar himself was being intolerant. He was guilty of the very thing he was accusing these boys of being. And this is the issue of our day, friends. It's exactly what we hear today. And what we need to understand is that when our friends and our family members and our teachers, whoever they are, when they try to label us as intolerant and bigoted, we have to begin to see that most likely unwittingly they are stepping into the very same trap that they are accusing us of falling into. You see, there is no logical force behind that argument. When they say, what we believe should not be tolerated, they're being intolerant themselves. Let me repeat that. When they say that what we believe should not be tolerated, that no one should think that way, they're being intolerant themselves. They're guilty of the very thing they're accusing us of. And this, friends, I think is the reason why our text just sort of chortles at Nebuchadnezzar. It just sort of smiles at him and makes a little fun of him because he speaks from a position of power, but he does not speak from a position of authority. He has no authority. His commands don't make sense. They're illogical. And so when we ask ourselves, Who's the most tolerant person in this story? Or what's the most tolerant viewpoint or worldview? It certainly isn't Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? It's not Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. And when you hear that point of view in the world today, don't accept it as being the most tolerant position. Because it's not. Now we have to move on to the next question, and that's about comparing methods of spreading the truth, all right? How do Shadrach and company do this? How do they sort of spread their truth? And how does Nebuchadnezzar do that? And it's, again, a question we have to ask because I think it's a legitimate question and it's the legitimate reason of our neighbor's fears. They fear that when someone lays exclusive claim to the truth, if they get a little power on their side... They're going to impose, impose their wills on everyone around them. They'll gather together a majority and force society into compliance, right? And that's happened many, many times. I've shared this story with you before. I'll share it again because it's kind of etched in my mind from my childhood. <clears throat> has to go with this theme. But uh, when I was just a little guy, there was a girl who lived down the street from us who was kind of a bully, and uh, actually, she was really a bully. And she would throw rocks at us and stuff when we would walk past her. And, and one day, I got pretty upset with her, <clears throat> and we began to wrestle on the lawn. And I wrestled her, and I finally got on top of her, and I was holding her down. 
And the thought that crossed through my mind is this world would be a better place if this girl got a little religion in her. And I said, I'm not going to let you up until you tell me that you believe in God. And she finally did. And that was my first convert. (laughs) On to a life of evangelism, right? Um, But friends, that's exactly what our world fears, what our society fears, is that monotheists, once they get a little power behind them, they kind of go crazy. And they want to force everybody to see the world like they do and to do and to live the way that they do. But if you look at Daniel chapter 3, what you actually find here are two very different ways of spreading the truth. Okay? Let's ask, how does Nebuchadnezzar do it? Well, Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I've got the truth, and that is that there are many different gods. You can't get stuck on just one. And if you don't see things the way I see them, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Be done with you. And if that doesn't work, I'll cut you up into little pieces and reduce your houses to rubble. Which was exactly his same threat last week. He's not real imaginative. Again, the text kind of plays, plays with Nebuchadnezzar. But what we see there is that it's actually the pluralist in the story who's imposing his will on everyone else. It's like my way or the highway. Now look at Daniel's three friends. Look at the monotheists in the story. They don't threaten anyone. They certainly don't throw anyone into a fiery furnace. They act respectfully toward the king. They're good citizens of the kingdom. They're even tolerant of other religions around them. What makes them distinct, what makes them different, is that they simply will not bow their knees to other gods. They will not bow their knees to other gods. You see, what we have here, friends, is a contrast in kingdoms. There's a phrase here that's used to describe all the people that Nebuchadnezzar gathers for worship. Peoples, tongues, and nations. Peoples of every tongue and nation. You find it in verse 4. You find it again repeated in verse 7. And I hope, I hope that that little phrase might remind you of the book of Revelation and when we studied Revelation. Because there, too, we heard about people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue and people, and they were all gathered for worship. Where were they gathered for worship? They were gathered in heaven. Who were they worshiping? They were worshiping the Lamb. And who was the Lamb? The Lamb that was slain. They were worshiping a lamb that had been slain for them, not a lamb that was threatening to slay them if they didn't worship him. You see, Daniel and Revelation often go together, and we find these kinds of themes. In Revelation as well, You find in Daniel this theme of of what? Nebuchadnezzar is using his power, the power of the government, to force worship of his image. 
It's the exact same thing that's going on in the book of Revelation where the beast from the sea is using his power to force everyone to worship the dragon. That's the way things work in this world, but it's not the way things work in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we worship a lamb that doesn't use power and force to force us to worship himself. He simply attracts us to himself through his self-sacrifice and his love. Look again at the very last verse of our text. If you still have your Bibles open, it says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. My first thought was, wow, it takes a lot to get a promotion in Babylon. You've got to get thrown in a fiery furnace and all this kind of thing. Um, you might think it's tough to get a promotion in your job, but think about Babylon. My second thought was, but actually this is the norm in the kingdom of God. If you want to go up, you go down. Followers of Jesus humble themselves, and God lifts them up. Followers of Jesus pick up their crosses and follow him. And Jesus, or in God, raises them up. It's the mind of Christ. And we find it right here in Babylon. You see, friends, you don't have to force people to worship Jesus. You just have to tell them what he's done for you. You tell them of his love and his mercy, and they give their hearts. They give their worship to him. It's not something we extract from them. And that leads to our last point, and that is, for Christians, truth is a person. And that's something, friends, we have to understand. Truth is a person. In fact, if you've been called a bigot, if you've been called intolerant, if you've been called arrogant and all those sorts of things, chances are you may not get this point. That the truth we proclaim is a person. And that person is Jesus. You cannot forget that. You see, <clears throat> there are some so-called Christians who seem to cling to the example of Nebuchadnezzar from this story. Of all people, Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Why him? Well, because they think at the end of the story, he's converted, right? He wants everybody to praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if they don't, they shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubble. How do we know that he wasn't converted? Well, he hasn't become anything like Jesus Christ or the God of Jesus Christ. The point is that someone who actually worships the God of Jesus Christ does not say, worship him or else. To know the truth, you have to know Jesus. 
the character of Jesus, the mind of Jesus that we talked about in Philippians, the way of Jesus. And if you don't know these things, you don't know the truth. And what you're trying to spread is not the truth. Our neighbors really should have nothing to fear from us except the gospel itself. The gospel itself, which is scary enough. What is the gospel? That you must give up. You must throw in the towel when it comes to trying to please your God or your gods and make yourself acceptable to them. You might as well give that up and what? And trust that Jesus Christ has done that for you. That's a scary thing. It's a scary thing for me. It's a scary thing for anyone. I'm always trying to make myself more acceptable, more acceptable to God, and then I've got to keep coming back to the gospel. Oh yeah, that's what Jesus did. I just I have to trust that he did a good enough job. And he did. The gospel is scary, friends. But if you know the one who gave up his life for you, that kind of love, well, you just might want to give up your life for him. That's the truth that we proclaim. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you. Not because it's always the most reasonable thing to do, but because you loved us first. We've seen that. We know it. We've seen the proofs. Lord, we ask that you would make us fitting vessels of your gospel, of your truth, as we carry Jesus to the people we love. In his name we pray, amen.